Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Adrian Davis and joining me this week through the middle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Ah, oh, not to um, paraphrase Smash Mouth too often because I feel <laughs> mm-hmm. like I'm fast making a habit of that, but it just don't stop coming, do it Ed? I'm alright mm. though, I'm alright, but uh, yeah, how are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I uh, went to the cinema for the first time in a few months yesterday to go and see The Last Jewel, which I think we'll probably... I'll try and find a way for us to talk about that in more depth in a future episode because I, I think it's a really fascinating movie. But it was it's a, it's, a, it's really... I had a really great time with it. I think it's a really, really great piece of work. And it was just quite nice. I think the last time I went to see a movie was when I went to see Old back in August... And sorry, I'm so sorry. Just the name makes the title makes me laugh every <laughs> time. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's simple but also ridiculous. It's kind of it's the perfect the perfect movie title. Um, <laughs> it was it was quite good going to see a movie again. Cases in around about where I live are are relatively low at the moment, so it kind of seems like more or less the the right time to start going back to see movies. And and one of the things that I was struck by that was very strange was that. I saw the trailer for the new Scream, which I haven't seen previously. I I know the trailer debuted like a few days ago, and people have been sharing it. But I had completely missed that the old cast are in it. That it is, you know, Courtney Cox and David uh, Arquette, and you know the the whole gang, uh, or at least of the survivors are in it. I was under the assumption that it was like a straight reboot, which. I found and I just found that to be really strange because it made sense when they did like Scream 4 because obviously it was a sequel and Wes Craven was you know still alive and still involved um yeah it, and I know we've had loads of these kind of like quote-unquote legacy sequels as Matt Singer called them where you know you, you cast the original cast members in a later movie in order to kind of lend it some sort of legitimacy or whatever but I don't know it, it felt really it felt really strange for a movie to just be called Scream to like rely so much on the older cast members who I imagine with the exception of Courtney Cox because Friends you know has has had such a continued like relevance to millennials and zoomers yeah it's just it it just struck me as like very very weird I I didn't realize that that movie was going in that direction so we'll go on to the news for this week, and it's a quiet week, but a week with um, some some definite uh, low points. Uh, I think yesterday the the big story I think has to be the uh, tragic death of Helena Hutchins, who was a cinematographer who worked was working on the movie Rust, which is a western starring Alec Baldwin uh, during the course of shooting a scene. Alec Baldwin fired a prop gun, which had not been, as it as it turned out, as you know, more details have ar- arisen, had not been set up correctly. Had in fact used a real bullet, and in firing it, he injured the director of the movie and um, ultimately killed Helen Hutchins. Um, and like I say, like as the story broke, I think it broke on Thursday initially. 
and initial details came out people were talking about it as being similar to like brandon lee's death on the crow where he was you know killed by a malfunctioning prop gun uh with blanks but as more details have come out and talk about how the crew on rust had walked out on the day that the accident happened because they were they had complaints about um working conditions and they felt unsafe particularly in regards to the use of um guns in the movie then uh, apparently non-union crew were brought in to kind of replace the people who walked out and the person who was in charge of the guns apparently had mishaps previously and wasn't that experienced so it just seems like there were red lights flashing all over the place and like no one did anything to stop it and the end result is you know uh, the, the tragic death of Helen Hutchins at the age of 42. Oh god, it's just hearing every element of it just makes it worse and worse, doesn't it? Mm. And I remember when it first came out and there was a big rush and we were told not to uh, go to assumptions and Twitter was simultaneously, as it always is, a mix of people showing a lot of compassion and people not. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that really cemented the tragedy of this is the detailed thread from SL Juan, which I retweeted, but I think went viral, so it's reasonably easy to find, who is a an armourer, a mm-hmm. very experienced film armourer at that. And the level of checks that went unchecked in this instance and it's the point where SL Huang says in this thread like myself and my colleagues are just saying how how could this happen the whole point is that for all of these checks is that this never happens and I think that's what makes it such a tragedy to me is this was so completely avoidable yeah, and and should have been like this was not necessary at all. And other kind of colleagues, and particularly um, women DOPs, uh, Donna Gonzalez, for example, um, friends of and colleagues of Helena, saying no shot, no movie is worth a life, and and I completely, completely agree with that. And it's not that long after Sarah Jones was killed, mm, and yeah. that was what, five years ago? We were saying never again, never again, and everyone sort of vexed about it, and yet this is still happening, and corners are being cut. And like you said, Ed, the details that just poured out of the amount of people who walked out and that Helena stayed on, and I wonder mm. how much of that... It's, it's hard to know the line between speculating and wanting to be as empathetic to her position as possible because I wonder how much she felt that she had to be there because this was her first big feature mm. you know and it's just all of these different elements it's it's everything that um Ayatsi and uh Beck too in the UK is talking about just in terms of safety it's not even talking about <laughs> like a living wage just talking about living um mm. but also the state of how anyone who isn't a white man has to work in a different way and push themselves harder and put themselves at risk 
um, in a way that no one should have to. And the producers of this film have a lot to answer for. Um, and I think the painful thing is that this is negligence. Mm. And things almost yeah. make more sense if there's some sort of motive behind it, but there's but there's not. It's it's incompetence and negligence, which is what makes this truly tragic. And it should never happen again. Yeah, and as you mentioned with like Ayatsi and the the things that, you know, that potential strike were aiming towards, like it just really throws into stark relief like the 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 how necessary it is what they're they were fighting for you know like the just the basic kind of ability for people to do their job without risking life and limb you know like particularly not in like obviously you never want to like have like a stunt person die making a movie but you know occasionally it does happen and then you think you know that unfortunately is is kind of part of the job that they sign up for is they'll be put in dangerous situations um it definitely shouldn't be the case for you know cinematographer filming by all accounts what doesn't seem to be like you know a western something that probably wouldn't be like that high in the kind of like category of like a risky job yeah. like you're you're not having a car flying at you at like 200 miles an hour you're you know filming people having conversations and then pulling guns on each other, which should not be a situation where someone could suddenly and shockingly lose their life. In other news uh, today, uh, which is the, the 24th on the day that we're recording this, although people will hear it um, sometime uh, in the next week, uh, Dune, the kind of huge uh, adaptation of the Frank Herbert novel, which has been uh, <laughs> gradually coming out for the past two years, you know, with all of the, the delays of COVID and things like that, um, opened in the US and opened to about $40 million, which is pretty good for a big kind of adaptation of a dense, fairly old, uh, you know, popular, but not like ubiquitous book, you know, like, I think the comparison would be like, it's the sci-fi equivalent of Lord of the Rings in some respects. It's like the sci-fi Thing that everything, so many other things draw upon, but I don't think that Dune necessarily had the staying power that Lord of the Rings had, um, at least at this point. It's, it's very much something that people who grew up in the 60s and 70s read a lot, and then its popularity kind of like tailed off in the 80s and 90s, so that now only true losers <laughs> read it, uh, if, including myself. And uh, whereas Lord of the Rings, I feel like, you know, remained fairly popular throughout the last, like, you know, in the, the 70 years between it being written and the movies coming out. And uh, this is doubly impressive, you know, $40 million because, um, you know, it's a property that doesn't necessarily have like a huge built-in audience or guarantee of success. It's coming out during the pandemic where movies have kind of like struggled to kind of break out unless they're part of big pre-existing franchises. And also it is the latest movie from Warner Brothers to open in theatres and on HBO Max on the same day. They've done this throughout the year as that there was their kind of like plan to try and get out their movies to people instead of just sitting on them and also as a way to kind of like drive people to sign up for HBO Max. And um, it's probably the only one of those that has been like a real out and out success. They've had lots of movies which have just kind of like people have clearly watched them at home and not gone see them in theatres because 
things like you know in the heights didn't do very well cry macho didn't do very well malignant didn't do as well as it probably could have like there's just been a long list of movies that were released under this model and didn't succeed so it's quite interesting to kind of have a data point uh for that trend that actually has you know been a pretty much unequivocal success and for it be to be arguably the least likely of those to succeed is also um quite interesting to see i still haven't seen dune i'm gonna double bill it next week with the french dispatch so i can get a double dose of uh, chalamet but uh i was gonna say how much of this is just the chalamet effect do you reckon mm. i i i find it hard to judge because obviously he has a big following i think a lot of people really got on board with him from um uh, call me by your name and i think also uh he gained a lot of fans from little women um because laurie the character is always something that just seems to really connect with fans of that story um but yeah i i do wonder if like maybe i personally underestimated how much of a draw he is for people because obviously he is he's like one of those people who's famous and people like know who they are but it's hard to judge if that necessarily translates to someone being an actual draw yeah i think he's just the uh the man of the moment really i think mm. because he's older as as a like as a pinup he's like right. perfect gen z pinup and he's not too young that millennials can't you know it's not creepy for someone to say i have a crush on timothy chalamet I don't. Mm-hmm. I flatly don't. I've, I find him deeply uncharismatic and I don't understand the pull at all. But I observe it and I and I know it exists. Um, like like black holes. Yeah. You're just kind of like, yeah, I, I understand how these work. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like even the draw isn't, yeah. But I do want his hair. Um, he, mm. he features on my hair inspo Pinterest board quite a lot. So if he wants to let me know his um, routine... It's probably some bumble and bumble in there somewhere. Then happily, I think he's just, yeah. I think you can't underestimate how much he cemented himself with "Call Me by Your Name" because that's the perfect mm. art house buildings romance. And to see him kind of move into stuff that's a little bit like Dane DeHaan did, um, kind of moving from like I'm struggling with growing up into but i also look like i could be from another planet <laughs> um <laughs> sort of uh, straddling that it'll be interesting to see what he continues to do and and particularly as he gets older um yeah i, I think he's going to pull a dicaprio very successfully is my is my bet mm. i think also he is of the like younger generation of actors like people are in their like mid-20s through to early 30s he's like one of the ones who has most been very he's been especially canny with his career choices yeah because he has rather notably not done any marvel stuff Mm. he this is the closest thing he's done to a blockbuster and it's like the least likely (laughs) blockbuster in um at the last couple of years like he is someone who is very smartly chosen like who he wants to work with um what kind of air he wants to give off and i think he has he he reminds me i think of like mid 90s johnny depp maybe yeah like pretty boy 
conventionally very good looking could be a conventional actor but instead chooses to work with you know directors who make stranger more interesting stuff and so therefore he kind of has the best of both worlds he has the the looks that will just you know get turn most people's heads not you or i <laughs> but a lot of people's heads but also there is a certain amount he has a, a lot of credibility because he is seen as being someone who picks good projects and who has at least so far very kind of uh, conspicuously stayed out of the current vogue for you know hollywood filmmaking blockbusters franchises superheroes like none of that has been on his cards and he's, he's kind of played uh, played the game very well in trying to find the space to be, you know, the the art house heartthrob kind of crossover that he is he has become. Yep, someone's definitely earning their fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. And finally, in the news, uh, another sad uh, piece of news: the death of Peter Scolari, who passed away at the age of sixty-six. Peter Scolari is a kind of character actor who has been in tons of things. I think you know he was a, a, a reasonably big star in the 80s through appearing on Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks you know like that was their, their breakout role and then he just kind of consistently worked in all sorts of projects I think I first saw him in of all things the Honey I Shrunk the Kids TV series yeah. where he played the Rick Moranis role um, but um, I think I uh, rediscovered him years later when he appeared on Girls was playing uh, Hannah Horvath's um, father played uh, Hannah Horvath of course played by Lena Dunham uh, for which he won an Emmy uh, a few years ago and um, in the wake of his death uh, uh, someone I, I can't remember who but someone shared the story about how he came to win that Emmy which is that um, he initially wasn't nominated. He came seventh of the six in terms of votes, but then Peter McNichols, who was nominated for his work on Veep that year, was deemed ineligible. So Peter Scolari got bumped up to the number six slot and was nominated and then ended up winning the whole thing, which I think is the most character actor way <laughs> to win an Emmy, to be the guy who's just dependable. And then when everyone says, oh yeah, like let's be forced to consider this guy's work suddenly everyone's saying oh yeah actually you know what he is actually pretty fantastic we really should recognize him and it's quite nice that he got that recognition sort of later in life that he otherwise didn't have. i think he was nominated a bunch of times for his work on uh newhart which i think was another kind of like early role for him but there was like a, a gap of about 30 years between nominations so um it was like super nice to see him get that that recognition uh, later in life absolutely so we'll go on to the main topic for this week and when this episode goes live which will be uh, assuming i get it all done in time will be halloween uh, itself the 31st of october the scariest day of the year some would say and uh well, at least the spookiest maybe not scary certainly spooky ooky altogether kooky um <laughs> So we wanted to do something that was kind of, you know, horror, scare scare adjacent. And so what we're going to be talking about this week is scary moments or characters, scares in general from things that aren't horror. Uh, Emily, you were the 
one who provided the impetus for this episode, so so why don't you get us going? All righty. Well, yeah, I like your term of scare adjacent there, Ed, um, because mm. you proposed, like, oh, should we do a sort of horror-based episode? And I said, yeah, because I've, I've been watching Twin Perfect's deep dives, and by deep, I mean deep, uh, on Mulholland Drive and the entirety of Twin Peaks and really enjoying them. And then you said, oh, yeah, no, that would be great. But, you know, it's interesting because... David Lynch is very scary, but I wouldn't call him a horror filmmaker. And I completely agree. Even though there are many things that are horrific, there's something scary and unsettling that Lynch in particular, I think, plays with primal fear. And that's not the courtroom drama featuring Richard Gere. Um, that is altogether unsettling and eerie. And a lot of what I've been watching recently in that sort of, um, in the scare adjacent is, funnily enough, often led by women. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's, the difference is between a horror film where you have a full scare, um, which I would define as like a physiological response. Like you jump out of your seat, you scream. Um, Mm -hmm. but the loop is kind of closed. Whereas the stuff I'm talking about is the stuff that really gets under your skin and doesn't kind of close the loop, maybe ever, (laughs) maybe long long after. It's basically, we're talking about films that are haunting. Mm -hmm. Um, And for example, I would say... If we look at something like Twin Peaks The Return, and obviously one of my first uh, appearances on this here podcast was talking about mm. that uh, in um, quite uh, quite a bit of depth. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, to sort of recap briefly, so Twin Peaks The Return and something like Mulholland Drive are heavily allegorical and obviously dream logic gets thrown around a lot. But I think and I have to agree with Twin Perfect here, I think Lynch is dealing with concepts. And I think what people forget about Lynch is that he trained as a painter. Mm. And I think what he is doing is creating artworks, but using film as a medium. Um, and this is, you know, the wankiest thing a film graduate can say, but he <laughs> is. He's painting with time and sound and vision. Um, and he's an abstract painter. So his... He uses narrative and plot to a point where you shouldn't care about what's going on. What he's doing is he's using characters as embodiments of concepts. And I get it, it's not for everyone, because it is heavily allegorical. But you can't deny that stuff happens and you move through it, and it's very open to interpretation, but without doubt it makes you feel something. Um, So with Twin Peaks The Return in particular, I think also Mulholland Drive to an extent, those are some of the kind of most realistic, gory things that I've seen of Lynch. Because things like um, so Eraserhead, for example, they're just quite odd. Um, there's mm. a sort of Cronenbergian uncanniness to it. But I think the effects in Mulholland Drive with like corpses, for example, and particularly in Twin Peaks The Return, there's a lot of like I've never seen more violence in a David Lynch joint than in Twin Peaks: The Return. So a lot of it's incredibly nasty, but still, mm. it, it it doesn't kind of override as as horror. 
even though, and I think a lot of it is that we end on a scream, which doesn't close the loop. If anything, it continues it. So I found that immensely haunting. And I watched um, Picnic at Hanging Rock mm. and <laughs> recently, and that is kind of the epitome of like a sunshine haunt. Like yeah. you do not see the night at all in this film that I remember. Like there may be sort of evening points, but the most terrifying thing is the expanse of the unknown in broad daylight that mm. these women are missing and and you can't you, you just cannot find them for anything and the lack of any sort of explanation and that the mystery just keeps on going and Lynch is someone who I think to imperfect argues really um, coherently for is someone who's like I want you to appreciate the mystery and keep it going because once it's done you forget about it Whereas Peter Weir, yeah. I think, is is definitely doing something. Um, he's less appreciative of the mystery and more in kind of awe of it. And, and in awe, I mean, like, the terror that is involved in the awe. And I think that's part of it as well. Like, we are haunted by things that, in, like, bring us that sort of sense of the, the agony and the ecstasy and the kind of, of something being so beyond you, but also feeling so threatened by that. So yeah, I hope that sort of makes sense as a <laughs> as an introduction to the topic. I got quite into it there. <laughs> uh, yeah, to to kind of um, keep on with Lynch as well, like because you mentioning Lynch made me think of others. So I, I have kind of other examples of his work that I find particularly terrifying. But again, like you say, he's not someone that I would necessarily think of as a horror filmmaker. Because you know there is such an abstraction, there is such a difference of mood, there is a sense that he's not necessarily trying to scare you as the end point of what he's doing, more that that's a useful tool to kind of reach the ends that he's aiming for. Um, like the, the 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 example I thought of earlier is like if, for example, you know when Showtime had the Masters of Horror TV show, like if they had announced that David Lynch was making an episode of that, everyone would kind of scratch their heads. Yeah. <laughs> um, because even though he has crafted, I think some images and sequences that are deeply, deeply upsetting and terrifying, that he just does not. His films just do not easily fit into that category. But uh, to kind of return to Twin Peaks, I think um, there are specific images in Twin Peaks that I think are absolutely terrifying. The first appearance of Bob, where you know, you just see him briefly in kind of like a subliminal f- uh, flash at the end of a bed. Um, it's just like a deeply terrifying because it comes out of nowhere, as, as a lot of the horror in, in Lynch's films and, and shows tend to. Um, but also from the original Twin Peaks, the episode Lonely Souls, mm. which is, for fear of spoiling it, because even though, you know, that's a very popular show um, and it's been out for a while, you know, there are there are things in that show that I think if people are seeing it for the first time should be unspoiled. It's the one where they reveal who the killer is. Mm. And that the last sort of 10 to 15 minutes of that episode are among the most terrifying things I've ever seen in a television show. Yeah. Because we the audience realize things and the depth of the awfulness of them um become apparent to us and then uh we see in the words of um the giant 
that it is happening again. <laughs> we 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 are forced to see something truly terrible happen to uh, a character who up until that point has kind of been um, a really kind of like lovely, sunshiny uh, presence on the show. And I think that, again, um, contrast, I think, is so important in Lynch's work. And, and again, to kind of talk about painting, about like light and shadow and contrasting different concepts. There is such a, you know, Twin Peaks has this veneer of, you know, kind of like, soap opera brightness it has you know these kind of really beautiful autumnal colors it's got all these quirky characters but then when something bad happens all of that falls away and it just becomes all the more horrible because so much of it is about like awful terrible things happening under the comfy um placid surface of i i guess suburbia it's, it's not I guess Twin Peaks of Town doesn't seem like the sort of place that has suburbs, but I guess it is the kind of like archetypal suburbia mm. that that Lynch likes to play in. In other kind of Lynch um, scares, I have um, all of Inland Empire, oh, which, which yeah. is not a horror movie, but it will have your heart racing for all of its three hours. Um, but the one particular moment is the uh, the two two particular moments. One, Laura Dern running towards the camera, and then when as the closer she gets, the the more you suddenly realise that she's just screaming, which is like an audio visual so and also a shot where kind of like her face is overlaid overlaid digitally on itself, so it's just like giant and distorted, which is just such kind of like a great use of early, slightly uh clunky digital horror, digital effects to create something that feels like unnerving and strange um and the final thing i had for lynch was uh, the character of bobby peru in wild at heart played by willem dafoe who is not in the film much in my memory before i rewatched it a couple of years ago in my memory like he was in the movie for like half of it but i think he's only hit for like 20 minutes um but he's such an outsized character and he's so he's like a phys- physical embodiment of corruption mm. like down to his terrifying teeth and in particular the one scene that i think of that is just like so completely unsettling is the scene where he and again laura dern uh are in a hotel room and he's just kind of like talking to her and advancing on her and menacing her and there is this like unspoken suggestion of sexual violence which uh, doesn't take place but the suggestion is there for the entire scene and there's just something about his presence in the room that feels like such a violation in and of itself yeah and it is just like pound for pound like some of the like the most upsetting uh stuff in any kind of like lynch project and again you know that's a movie that is so like high energy and wacky and nick cage is talking about his belief in personal freedom and all this sort of stuff you know like it's like a, a real kind of like exuberant ride of a movie but then you have that scene where it all kind of just like slows down and you become aware of the sort of characters that exist in the world of um sailor and Oh, I forget what the what the Lord and character's name is. Um, I want to say Lulu, but I'm not sure if that's correct. Yeah, um, I think it's, is it Lula? Lula, that's right. Yes. Um, yeah, the, the 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 world that they inhabit is just like full of these completely like 
morally and spiritually bankrupt characters. And yeah, I've I've always found those elements of Lynch's work to be so like affecting and so scary. Yeah, I think because again, like this embodiment of concepts, like Lynch deals with archetypes and mm-hmm. they are very hard to shape. <laughs> they do not yeah. feel like specific characters they spread. You know, you can you uh, you don't realise how much that possibly we do have a unified field of consciousness until <laughs> David Lynch fishes <laughs> the uh, uh, the monsters from <laughs> from beneath. Um, <clears throat> yeah, he's he's up there for that because I think also he does like when you were saying about the kind of sunny facade. I think, and again, this is what Twin Perfect talks about a lot. But it's the idea of balance that really appeals to Lynch. And Mm. I think in Twin Peaks, what is so evident in the first series, less so in The Return, and Twin Perfect puts forward a very coherent theory that makes me like Twin Peaks The Return more, but David Lynch less, because it sounds like he has quite a grudge. So whether his motivations are, as interpreted by Twin Perfect, uh, spot on, who knows. But... Um, what what is for, sh- for for certain in Twin Peaks, at least the first series, is that goodness exists mm-hmm. um, and that goodness is real and that we are in a tussling battle with it. So as kooky as Cooper is, he's still a man of principle and of this kind of zen, um, like, you know, just, just the fact of, like, do something nice for yourself every day like a pleasure don't plan it just and it's like that's the best self-care advice anyone could give I think in terms of other kind of haunting things I guess a lot of it goes right back to childhood for me and seeing things Mm. that maybe I shouldn't have done I remember the faculty playing at my older cousin's birthday party and sneaking a bit of it and I ended up having nightmares for weeks I finally watched it again like years later and I thought this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen and I think it's because again like I I know I keep coming back to this closing the loop thing but I didn't have enough experience of the film to know how ridiculous it was all I could see were these horrible little shrimpy weird things that went up your nose and then made you (laughs) go wackadoodle but that stuck with me for a long time heavenly creatures as well Mm, like that's something I want to watch um sooner rather than later but that, like, little images from that, again, not something, like, straight-up horror, but that just, I can't shake, because there's a sinister sort of edge to them. Um, but what about you, Ed? Well, uh, in terms of childhood, I have a few on my list. The one that I think is the best example of something that really scared me as a child but I just kept watching all the time even though it scared me and maybe because it scared me was Dougal and the Blue Cat which is the magic roundabout movie from 1971 or around about then which um, like the TV series was you know um, footage from a French or Belgian TV show that um, Eric Thomas then kind of did new voices over and kind of added a kind of like a whimsical, a distinctly British 
quality to it. I think one of the first scenes is the character of Dougal uh, waking up from a nightmare and, shout- and shouting, uh, vote conservative. Which, which I thought was quite funny. funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the story of that one is that this cat, this blue cat called Buxton, who has a Derbyshire accent, um, <laughs> shows up and starts asking questions about, you know, where does, you know, Zebedee and his magic moustache and also about this weird castle that's on the horizon that he has a great interest in. And it's all about how he wants to go into this castle and to claim the power of a entity called Madame Blue, who is just a disembodied voice. And the sequence in which he goes into the castle is absolutely nightmarish. It's just a real assault of light and sound and this creepy voice that's constantly saying uh, blue is beautiful blue is best i'm blue i'm beautiful i'm best and these uh horrible like kabuki masks that are constantly like having their colors changed and a kind of like flashing at the screen it all feels very like um you know the scene in the Icarus file where they're trying to brainwash Michael Caine and they're just like flashing horrible images on it but for children um (laughs) but for children I think is a um a suffix that (laughs) makes anything funny but for but Uh, for children it's also like a very sad film like at one point all of the various characters except for Dougal are kidnapped and they're kept in this horrible looking jail and they all sing a sad song and like it's it's kind of got all of these different tones that it kind of takes it takes you on a real journey of emotions and then you know everything ends up working out in the end and it ends up fine but um that sequence is like just one of those things that as a kid i just found like truly truly terrifying and when i rewatched it again i probably about 15 years ago i think i think i found it on youtube someone had uploaded the whole thing it still had this kind of like real power to it where it genuinely feels quite unnerving and the way it's edited and the way it's like put together it's so keys into i think a lot of the psychedelic cinema of the sort of the late 60s early 70s and you know try and, and kind of crams it into this you know kind of like funny whimsical narrative about um all the people who live around a magic roundabout um but that's one as a kid that um really kind of had an impact on me and still i think of like it's like oh yeah that was like one of the scariest things i ever saw as a child and then the other one that i have um i guess there's there's kind of specific moments from it that i could point to but i think really in its entirety i would probably point to walter murch's return to oz oh fuck yes that's on my list too fuck me Mm -hmm. that film oh my god yeah that was another one that was in fairly constant rotation um, when I was a kid, you know, like recorded it off of TV or whatever. And like everyone talks about the wheelies who are like really, really terrifying. And then there's the the woman who um, is decapitated and has like a, 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 like a cupboard full of her own heads that she kind of like puts on, which is really upsetting. But I think the thing about that movie more than anything else is particularly if, and you know, this is why it was made because it's you know like part of the uh, much beloved kind of like oz universe that um people are massively familiar with because the wizard of oz was so successful um if you're familiar with the wizard of oz and you're you they take you back to oz and it's just this totally like corrupted um version of it there is just something very 
distressing about being taken to a place that you think you know and seeing it having been just like totally converted into a place of complete menace um and like you know you can point to the specific creatures and the design elements about that but that whole i mean the movie starts with dorothy in an insane asylum getting ready to be given electroshock therapy like everything about it is deeply deeply upsetting if you are familiar with the story from the brief from the uh the mgm movie um and i think it's very very effective at that whether or not um, it was perhaps too dark to have been a success when it came out uh, is another matter but I think it is just like so yeah I just think it's so good at taking images of childhood and twisting them in a direction that like makes them truly truly upsetting it's what it's like to actually be a teenager um, mm-hmm. it's, what I, it's what I remember from it going back to like again something going to a place that you think should be sort of um that you have fond memories of or that you expect is going to be like sunshine and delight the the little um boat scene in willy wonka and the chocolate factory oh um, yeah like yes i know that's i mean it's so it sticks out <laughs> which is the thing why mm. everyone remembers it because as much as we understand the threat and you know a lot of children died that day and i shouldn't be laughing but we, we, we don't return to that level of threat again. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, if you took that scene out, I don't think anything wouldn't track. But it mm. is just this very, I don't know if it's partly because it's so of the time. Um, yeah. In that sort of drug trippy kind of way. It does push things further being like Wonka could be dangerous. Um, mm. But it's so early on. And I remember just thinking, it's a bit like the pink elephants in, in Dumbo. Yeah, you know, like this kind of there for the sake of traumatizing us all, I guess. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of that in I think in Disney in general. Certainly, the Disney movies made during Walt's lifetime all seem to have some element of it designed to really kind of like creep kids out in a major way. I think the witch's transformation scene in Snow White, I think in particular, is like really really scary the death of Bambi's mother just conceptually is very very scary um the one I had also in terms of like Disney stuff was it's very small and like not a kind of like major part of the movie I don't think it's something that people really talk about much but I remember always being very very scared in Mary Poppins when uh Jane and Michael get lost very briefly like there's a bit where they kind of like run into the back alleys and like they're just like there's just like it really captures i think the childhood fear of getting lost in a public place um when you're just like small and you don't know where to go and you don't know who to trust and everything's really scary and again it's maybe 30 seconds in the whole movie but it's one of those things from it that really stood out to me as being something that like really kind of like digs into a very very specific childhood fear going to say it just taps right to the source doesn't it and i wonder if a lot of what these films have in common like film and, and tv has in common is that it's not a threat that can be vanquished mm. it, it's much more abstract and it's yeah it, it's the thing that could possibly happen yeah it's it's also like um 
one some of the things that scared me the most as a kid, which again I kept going back to over and over, was like the books of Roald Dahl. Yeah. And I think, I think so much of what they what gives them their power is that they are playing upon fears uh, for kids. Like there's so much of them about like losing parents. You know, like um, James's parents get eaten by a rhinoceros um, in James and the Giant Peach. Um, the uh, uh, in the witches, which is probably his scariest book, for my money. You know, like there's the whole thing about you know like the parents are both dead. He lives with his grandmother, and um, I think there is just like a real, and this is probably like informed by the fact that Roald Dahl like grew up at a time where, you know, if you lost both your parents and really and truthfully you were just completely fucked for life. I mean, now it wouldn't be great. But, like, I feel like there's more options available for people. But um, the sense of just, like, abandonment of, of, of maybe being sent to a aunt or a, a, an elderly relative who turns out to secretly be cruel and horrible, all of those sort of things. Like, they are so, like, elemental fears for children that using them as a, like, a jumping-off point, I think, lends an instant sense of fear to stuff that might otherwise not necessarily be intended to be that scary. Another one that I just think of now is the Alfonso Cuaron version of A Little Princess, which oh, I remember gosh. watching a lot as a kid. Oh, um, um, and a big element of that is that the the main character's father goes into World War One and he gets mustard gassed and ends up with amnesia. So everyone thinks he's dead. And so she goes to like a... Um, like a foster home or, 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 or whatever. It's been a while since I've seen it, but like there's a lot of darkness inherent in that and a real sense of like abandonment and of the world completely having a fallen fallen apart, which I, as a kid, found to be like really, really uh, distressing. Oh, God, yeah, big time, big time. If you were to recommend any one haunting film slash telly for anyone... Uh, who would like to observe this spooky season, Ed? What what would it be? Oh, I think the one that I have um, on my list, I think, would be the most fun for people to watch. Um, would probably be the Leave Gentlemen Christmas special. Oh, uh, nice. Which, uh, admittedly, out of season, but um, that's one. Like, obviously. There's a darkness to the League of Gentlemen that's always been there. You know, like those guys always talk about how much they love horror, you know, Hammer, and you know, kind of like tales of the unexpected. So that 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 has always been part of the of the palette from which they work. But I remember watching the League of Gentlemen Christmas special for the first time as a fan of of the show and who kind of went in thinking, I know what they're like, I know what their work is like, I'll be able to handle them, and just being petrified by it like it genuinely does feel like they took the opportunity of like ah this isn't really tied to the show directly you know like we're using the characters but they're telling their own little stories or whatever so let's really go nuts and that is one where i think again that is just like one of those things that the first first time watching it just being so completely like bowled over by how truly scary it was uh, what about you, Emily? What would you you recommend? I think for me, it has to be um, the adaptation of M.R. James's "Whistle and I'll Come to You" from the late sixties. Yeah. I think it, mm-hmm. I think um, it's still on YouTube in a couple of uh, couple of links. 
Um, and definitely the 68 one. Nothing against um, the more recent adaptations, but for me, that's just it. I think because it's such a fantastic modern gothic where very little happens other than a thick sense of unease throughout the whole thing. And it is this um, kind of battle of academic fustiness and certainty versus things that go bump in the night. And it mm. just, I remember watching it quite young and being like, and again, I cannot stress how little happens, and yet it's absolutely terrifying. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's definitely something deeply kind of like engrossing and scary about that conflict between absolute certainty that there's nothing to be afraid of, and uh, the world basically saying, "Oh no, <laughs> there's things to be afraid of." So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Short Versal Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Prioritise pleasure from self-esteem. Self-esteem is life and death and everything in between. I am obsessed with her and her work. Um, I actually need to go back and listen to her first album. But this, her sophomore album, is a cultural reset, I have to say, Ed, um, as the parlance online um, bequeaths these moments as being um, people are saying it's the pop album of the year, I think it's the pop album of the last ten years um, I've never come across something that seems to encapsulate so much of the kind of millennial woman experience it's a staggering record and as much as I will always be a Fiona Apple gal at heart fetch the bolt cutters you you kind of expect that in it within that sort of genre of music and it's amazing and it's not to say that i don't love that album as well but there's something incredible in the contrast of being able to make like a record just full of rallying cries and also like furiosa style howls in the desert it's it, it's just bangers it's wall-to-wall bangers ed um so i'm gonna stop gushing about it but yes prioritize pleasure by self-esteem cool i am going to recommend uh i uh blade rewatch blade i rewatched blade last week or the week before last whatever it was i hadn't seen it in about 10 or 15 years that movie still slaps it's still (laughs) it's still so much fun wesley snipes is is fantastic it looks great it's got such a great soundtrack i love um the reliance on banging techno for action sequences, uh, which is something I think we need to bring back, uh, much missed in horror in, in action cinema now. And yeah, it's just like a wonderful mix of action and horror and gore and just a real sense of kind of like the perfect actor lining up with the perfect role. So yes, everyone go and rewatch uh, Stephen Norrington's Blade. It's a great time. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player from Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.